Welcome. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, got another another exciting episode of Energy Bites. I've been looking at our transcripts, and I, we say exhilarating almost every time. So I'm going to switch it up yeah. with exciting. <laughs> another hyperbole <laughs> to, uh, yeah, to throw in there. This, this is not brought to you by ChatGBT, even though it may sound that, like it is. Uh, uh, here we are, guys. Appreciate uh, our guests today, John and Josh from uh, Well Database, coming on and and chatting with us how you guys doing good how you doing doing good man thanks for having us on man yeah yeah excited to have you here we are we uh been trying to get this for a while (laughs) yeah mainly my fault but (laughs) finally got schedules all aligned but you know john's off living in the mountains and yeah josh is still almost an hour away (laughs) even though he's in the same town as us (laughs) in the woodlands but that's what i was gonna say it's no different it takes him as long to get there as it takes me yeah yeah you fly yeah it would probably be faster to come here from from bush than it would be from the woodlands (laughs) (laughs) oh man oh yeah anyway how you doing bobs you good yeah great life's good yeah bobby's uh Bobby's swatting away all the the Grace and Mill rumors that just recently <laughs> dropped, so we're uh, we're gonna avoid that because yeah. of that. But how you guys you guys are the founders of Well Database? Tell tell everybody kind of yeah. just what Well Database is real quick. If they're not familiar, I think most people are because you guys have, have built such a great product and yeah, great following. And one thing we've been asking people yeah. too when they come you know to our business lately um, when they're presenting is like, what was the problem statement too? Yeah, you know, kind of. Ooh, what what were you trying one. to solve? Oh my god! Huh. You see, it, and I've, I've been thinking about this a little bit too because I, people start companies for lots of different reasons, and I feel like people skim over that. Like the reason you start a company really kind of sheds light on your goals and where you're trying to go, and you know where the customer lies within those goals, and I think that says a lot about it. Um, but you know, Josh and I worked together for since we were kids. I don't know how that's happened, but like we met when we were really young. Now you're and, old. And uh, that's why right, I am old. Yeah, Josh made the forty under forty. I'm I aged out. So, <laughs> um, but no, we we worked we worked at a few different places. We were together at Schlumberger. We worked at a consulting group, um, and uh, you know we were working at New Tech Energy at the time, and we were you know using one of our competitors today um, to load data into an ERP system. We had a staff of people loading and cleaning data. We had, uh, you know, an expensive contract, and then they bumped us fifty percent on the contract, which was already high. Um, and I think, you know, Josh and I had been tossing around what we want to be doing because, you know, we knew we were game for starting a software company. Um, and so we just got sick of it, and we were like, we don't have API connections. We are trying to jump through hoops. We're paying exorbitant fees for mediocre data, and we're like, you can screw this. These states are online. We're going to do this ourselves. We're going to provide data with better terms, better prices. We're going to automate this whole thing. And then, yeah, uh, that was kind of fateful last words because and it, should it would be years later. <laughs> oh, yeah, God. yeah, years later. Years later, we were finally done. We got the the automation system in place, which runs today, which is, I mean, people don't realize it. And we go eager with it and on the tech side because we we run, you know, millions of jobs every single day. And people are like, well, I mean, what changes for millions? I mean, there's 6 million wells in our database. Like how many, how can you run so many jobs? But we go through and just really eager for looking for updates, changes, anything. And it's all automated. So it doesn't cost us anything to do. Right. So we just we get really kind of overzealous with spinning off jobs and 
acquiring that data. So we go out to all the sources, though, all the state sources, regulatory bodies, and you know our model that we built um, is a little bit bigger. And so we can go out to you know university systems. Uh, you know the frac focus is an easy one. USGS, um, university lands, in, right? You know certain aspects of data of the EIA, uh, and we pull it all together. We aggregate it all together and give it in one one kind of simple interface so that people can get stuff, uh, get the data on the public side that they need. And then you know since it's all automated, we don't have the headcount the other guys have. We we don't have the delays the other guys have. You mean you so, don't have uh, hordes? Of we just pass on the manually. Savings doing data entry yeah yeah exactly. we, had, we had somebody tell us we had somebody tell us once they came into our office and they said they had been to one of our competitors office and they walked through uh i guess they were giving him a tour or something and they said that this dude had a stack of cds on his desk and he asked what is that and he's like well this is the data is how we load it we pull the cds in and then we copy the data out and then he was blown away by that, and I was too. I don't. I don't know what they were talking about. It doesn't make any sense. Did you ask him if they were CDRs or RWs. <laughs> yeah. Well. Yeah. No, that I brings mean... up so many like nostalgic memories of me pirating music as a child wow. and just burning DVDs and <laughs> yep. yeah. CDs. I, I, you couldn't. No. Yeah. We were having this conversation about this the other day with my son about the the PlayStation. Um, mm and the Nintendo 64. And it was all around Final Fantasy moving to the PlayStation because if you guys played Final Fantasy VII, it's four discs. And the cartridges on the N64 were like 400 meg. No, no, like 40 meg. meg. Yeah, 40 meg. It was going to take 40 of those or something like that. Anyway, so yeah, the CDs, we, we give talk trash about them now, but man, that was a big jump. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, yeah. I, I will never forget wanting a zip drive so bad before <laughs> cds really kind of took off right like, everybody did right yeah pre- mm-hmm. no man those are awesome floppies I mean, and yeah. then see those were like the next thing that mm-hmm. but they were so much bigger and then yeah almost yeah, and then you had the jazz after that was even bigger right yeah and then the cds the jazz drive. didn't the jazz drive do <laughs> yeah i don't remember what that was was that a gigabyte of it was storage? a gigabyte, I yeah, couldn't a remember. gigabyte of storage, I think. how expensive was that like oh that. they were beauty. so expensive. like it's just crazy to yeah. look at that like you're in walgreens now and you can buy a 256 gig flash drive that fits on your keychain right. oh, for yeah. 20 bucks yeah, yeah. Like, well oh even like God. i mean i mean i've talked to people yeah. who were in like you know hardware sales back mm-hmm. in even like early 2000s and it was like right now we talk about you know you mentioned snowflake i'm sure we'll get a little bit into that later but like 20 it's 23 bucks per terabyte compressed and like they used to sell terabytes for like exorbitant amounts yeah. of money like and it's just insane yeah no we uh yeah in the late 90s i always remember this that it was a dollar per meg for memory and uh yeah, that no. was you know you wanted a gig of memory it was a thousand dollars now uh, i just bought uh, 64 gigs for a machine we built here i think that did cost me a hundred dollars for that <laughs> yeah so insane oh man we're dating ourselves this is fun um <clears throat> no it's good you got to know where you came from these kids right. these days yeah. they don't i'm just i don't appreciate no, it i don't feel that old <laughs> no i don't i'm i'm just like i genuinely Remember feel the like transistor the, radio john <laughs> i genuinely feel like the, <laughs> my eight track and my my cb yeah. anyway our generation though it's a good time like i feel like got the opportunity to come through at a special time because i feel like the generation but like our parents they, you know, they don't, they're not very good with technology at all. It's all very new to them, but they never got the like opportunity to really try and learn it. And then the next generation, like everything has gotten a lot better from a graphical interface, like all of the stuff on the technology side has gotten yeah. better and easier to use. And so like, 
you know, girl, like I, I can't tell you how many computers I broke just messing around with stuff because that's all there was to do on the computer. Like, yeah. you know, you had your right. games on your floppy disks yeah. or whatever, and that was really it. And then file sharing and all of that stuff started. And it's like, man, I really learned a shitload about computers because of that, like hacking kind of open source yeah. mentality from the beginning. And I wonder like I if that ends up going away because of, you know, things get so much better or if it just shifts to, you know, a different area, but. I feel like everything yeah. also got, like, we got to grow up with it getting progressively more difficult, if that makes mm -hmm. sense. Like everything was super simple in the early nineties, both hardware and software, you right. know, and you got to toy around. And then as you got older, software got more and more complex and all these yeah. things. And now you got these huge areas of software. They're totally, you know, branches that are, didn't exist back then. So we right, kind yeah. of come along there. And now if you jump in from like our current, our kid's age, you know, mm -hmm. everything's already way up here. They don't yeah. hit that. Well, that's it. Yeah. That's what I think. They're just starting at a better place. And so yeah, like yeah. their hacking is a lot more interesting than our hacking was. Our yeah, hacking right. was, you know, can we make this DOS prompt say something back <laughs> yeah. to us? Like, who cares? Yeah. My reading first the computer manuals. The yeah. And like, our kids are now trying to like make videos of themselves. And, uh -huh. you, yeah. You know, my kids don't understand the right. concept of a mouse. Like they don't understand why you would use a mouse when they can just touch everything. Well, my dad just brought this old really? camcorder. He gave me as a gift when I started college. And he brought it over. And he's like, oh, I thought you might want this. Like, I don't, I will never use that. And my kids are like, ooh, what's that? Like, I mean, like, it just thinks huge. Like, yeah. And not nearly as big as the thing that they used to video my second birthday where my dad, like, rented it and was, like, on his shoulder. Um, right. All those family moments yeah. on the video. No, I have a mini DV cam. Oh, yeah. I've got a mini DV cam sitting somewhere in a box somewhere. I don't know why I still have it. Yeah. It's complete garbage, but... <laughs> Anyway, no, how, I, how did... I was going to say, though, I remember my dad bringing home his first computer. It was in the 80s, late 80s, and he was showing me how you can save a, a, a Word document on a disk. They didn't have enough memory really to right. store or storage to store anything locally. And I was like, this is the biggest waste of time. I think I said that to him. I was like, Dad, this is dumb. This is a waste of time. What <laughs> Who cares about computers? We'll never use this, Dad. Yeah. Yeah. It's like the, like the, what was the yeah. Today Show at like Katie Kirk, and then we're laughing at email oh, yeah, like, yeah. who's ever going to use this? You know, they thought it was so fun. Digital and, messaging. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, cool. Like, so let's jump into well databases. Um, I guess, I mean, again, maybe the tech story, because I mean, I'm, I'm really interested because I know I've talked to you over the last few years and I feel like even some things have changed maybe philosophically potentially, or maybe they didn't. I just made some assumptions, but, um, let's talk about like how, you know, maybe where the tech stack started, where you're at now and like, you know, why there were certain evolutions, you know, whether it was hardware and or software decisions. And yeah, even like a step before that too, which is, you know, what were the, like, what were the, the real hard pain points you were trying to, to solve with the product? Because, you know, in my opinion, there's you guys, you know, you've got combo curve, you've got a bunch of these companies that have spun up the, the root of what they're trying to do isn't different than what exists on the market, but how they're doing it, is basically if you blew up the existing company and started from scratch How at that today, point or... in time, right? Yeah. And so there's a lot different ways and techniques that you guys use versus your competitors or even just regardless legacy software products that um, I'm very curious to kind of hear y'all's, how y'all strategize that, architect it out, all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, from the very beginning, you know, number one, everything had to be automated. Like we're a small team. You know, so that was like a foundational thing that has run all the way till today. You know, now we're starting to, have, you know, lean on even AI and all that to automate document processing and that kind of stuff. But even back then, everything always had to be automated and that drove a lot of our choices. And then cost. You know what drove more of our choices? 
Yeah, being bootstrap. We we didn't yeah, have any money. I was gonna say and, besides that, yeah. And the uh, the fact is that the the numbers, most of the companies you're talking about there, um, and, and most companies today, they they just they don't have any money. You hop on the cloud and you start some incremental expenses on you know because if you just are doing a web app on the cloud with some minimal user storage or whatever it may be, it's it's cost is fine. It's not a big deal. You can squeak by for a couple hundred bucks a month and, and be just fine. Our product day one had to have the data and this data is not, so, you know, we joke about this. It's not big data, but it's not small data. Right. It's big ish data. Um, and so like we couldn't, the, the sheer, and it, okay, you also rewind this back to when we started back in, you know, February 1st in 2008, but really more in earnest in 10 or so. Um, the storage it was going to cost us for um, just the storage and the database access that we needed to function was going to be in the range of $10,000 per month. And wow. so that automatically made that just a no-go for us when, I mean, we were bootstrapped and we don't, Josh and I aren't wealthy people. Like we didn't come from money or anything like that. So this is a real bootstrap, like work on it at nights and until it can make some money and then keep working on it at nights. But anyway, so, you know, our goal was to piecemeal what we could get together what we could pay for out of pocket and you just kind of, you know, beg, steal and borrow what we can to get off the ground. And so, um, we've always hosted our own infrastructure because of that. I was gonna say, even when we started there, 2010, you didn't really have Azure cloud. You were spinning up, right? you know, it was starting to become a thing. But when we started, it wasn't, I mean, when we started, yeah. And so, and so cost was extremely high. And then, uh, so when we started, you know, we knew, we were, we were at Microsoft shop where we worked. And so we kind of knew that. And at the time, Microsoft launched their BizSpark program, which lets you get in some licensing and all that. So that helped us offset or get our database stuff and, you know, kind of drove choices along the way as well. Yeah. There's a couple of things there. Uh, one, I've, I've had this, I had this conversation earlier this week with somebody as far as like, well, we need this function to happen and we need, you know, should we write a script or should we find, you know, a, a different way to do it? And I was like, well, let's, use and I, it's funny because it's like a few years ago you can ask bobby i would have never said this out loud but i was like well let's just use like a zapier or make or something like that to get to start it <laughs> and get it in place because we need the speed of this feature and then we will turn it to the developers and get it on their backlog and then they will get to it when we have the time in our our backlog to get to it but uh you know there's that like I, th- I think bootstrap companies are so interesting because they the mentality is just so much different, right? Mm-hmm. It's like survive is literally the mentality. Yeah. And yeah. so like you yeah. learn these things of like, oh, well, I can use a low-code tool in the short term to get this moving and keep things rolling and put this in the backlog in the long term so that I can you know get to it when I need to get to it, not have to drop everything today and or hire another developer. Like there's so <laughs> many, especially now, yeah. like, I know back then it probably wasn't nearly as, as uh, fruitful as as it is now with all the different integration tools and, and RPA and no-code stuff. But I think right. that's a big thing that a lot of people just don't – they don't think about it, right? Or, like, in principle, they're against it. Like, I hated Zapier for the longest time yeah. because it's like, I'm just paying you for these stupid API calls that I know I could write, but I don't have the time to write and maintain a hundred <laughs> of them, right? And so it's like, okay, now I understand the value of what you do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, we've definitely seen some of that. It's hard. Josh and I are both technical, obviously. We, um, we're both programmers. And so we definitely run more into, you know, you run into a problem and let's just write the code to solve it and right. do it once and be do it right. And 
Yeah. Which sounds nice, except for those <laughs> the tasks add up much faster and you can complete them. Yeah. And uh, I mean, it's a trade off. I mean, one's a technical debt that you're taking on. Like, if you do that script or no code or whatever it is, it's it's a piece of debt. And you know, one, two, these things go on. These technical debt things start to stack up, and you know, you have to manage that debt and your time, and you know, yeah. find the walk that fine balance. Yeah, no, that's what it's actually a habit I've gotten into as a and piece of advice I'll throw out there. But if you do use these no code tools or whatever with your applications or software or whatever they may be, when you set them up, go and throw that function into your backlog as tech debt. I have a tech debt tag that I put in there now <laughs> there because, well, it, you know, like, okay, putting it in the backlog and not categorizing it in that way just means it's another backlog item and there's no like priority put on it or anything like that but putting it as tech debt like just that word debt feels bad to humans yeah. right like we don't like that and so it's yeah. like hey these yeah, are the so things bad, that you are just important. flush it out one day right and so like at some point we're gonna need to fix this shit and so <laughs> it's not gonna just yeah. go get lost in the backlog somewhere but um right no i think yeah. another thing you mentioned was like the uh the startup initiatives and programs that a lot of these guys have like I knew that they were there. I didn't realize how easy they were to like get and apply for. And, you know, a lot of them out of the box are like five, $10,000 worth of credits most of the time now yeah. up to, you know, Oh yeah. Six yeah. And the credit side and this BizSpark one, you know, again, being a Microsoft, Josh and I being Microsoft kind of in, in our past corporate lives, um, you know, Microsoft at the time. And it, I don't know, it gets bad raps here and there, but honestly, you know, it's, it's most it's, of the industry uses. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. Exactly. I mean, this was the start of new Microsoft for what it's worth. So, you know, it was the, you right. Know. Yeah. So, I yeah. mean, I'm assuming. And so, you know, being. Go ahead. Sorry, go. No, no, go ahead. You... I, interrupted... I interrupted you. Well, no, no, it's just the, you know, it's funny because uh, even today you, you see the breakdown of developers on Stack Overflow surveys and stuff like that. You know, these Python developers are, you know, ruling the world. And then, you know, you got all the other kind of weird offshoots and back end. Co anyway. Uh, .NET gets this like weird, you know, corporate rap that people don't want to jump into. But if you know, if you play with .NET Core, I mean, you can do uh, you can script as easily as you can in Python using Core and spin it up in, in the same ways. And so anyway, I, I don't. It's funny. I still think it gets a bad rap um, unnecessarily. Yeah, I mean, Microsoft in general. I mean, even like it was like, oh, they're yeah. so anti, anti open source, and then they bought GitHub. But when they bought GitHub, they were the largest contributor open source right. you know it's like mm -hmm. it's, in which again they've always had that whole embrace extend extinguish thing yeah. you know in their history so you kind of wonder sometimes about their uh, intentions well, but again they're going to be here for the long haul and i think you can build right. off of them and uh, it's Confidently. not just the flavor of the flavor of the month it's yeah. going to be supported and yep. there's going to be stuff behind you that... i think a lot of that just stems from like our how we grew up thinking of microsoft and apple like our generation's perspective Absolutely. of those softwares right yeah. and like that 90s early 2000s version of microsoft is very different in my opinion than what they are now but it took a long time for people to like trust that they weren't going to go back to that yeah that it, it yeah. wasn't that like you know we're just going to buy them to kill off the competitor and not do anything with it kind of scenario well, yeah even dot net yeah. they have an image problem because a lot of theirs their image even though it's an open source you know framework and everything it's still tied to the older frameworks so a lot of people don't right. realize that it, you know it is open source, runs on Linux, runs anywhere yeah, you right. need it to. And like, it's just a whole different ballgame. So, but that, well, let's, let's talk about that. Cause I mean, I think .NET Core has been a big deal. Like, has it always been that way? Or was that, I feel like .NET Core was a more, what, in the last five, 10 years? Or has it always yeah. been? Yeah. 
Um, no, yeah, last five years. That sounds about right. They yeah. started with uh, .NET Standard. They had a whole weird naming thing that's been confusing, and now it's yeah. standardized back to .NET eight. <laughs> okay. Um, standard then. So did core standard then core then now it's yeah. mainline. Right. So how did that change? Did like so? I mean, so when you started, was it kind of more of a monolithic architecture, um, or I guess because again, you, I guess there's two sides of this too. There's the whole running all your jobs to aggregate the data, right? And that's kind of a somewhat separate service in a way. And then you've got to host your web app, right? I mean, uh, can right. you talk about you know, maybe the way that was architected, and then yeah, you know, I guess did like say the advent of containers and uh, .NET Core and some of that. Did that change how did you? you know, do some, make some efforts to break that out. Just kind of curious on that. Yeah. I think starting kind of like high level architecture where y'all started and then going through the evolution and things you had to change and both yeah. pros and cons the of original, all those fun things. Yeah. So the original, uh, automation system was written in .NET framework. I think it even started on like three, five or something like that, which is right when link was brought yep. around, which is kind of a big thing for, for .NET. But, uh, yeah, so it was written in three uh, .NET framework full, and it used app domain. So it would dynamically load sub assemblies and uh, basically run these. Like John mentioned earlier, each of our sources, as we call them, gets their own code base, and uh, they can be, you know, run independently. And so we just basically had this thing that we call the uh, zombie, that goes out and gets these things, runs these jobs, and then delivers the uh, the uh, results back, and then processes them. You know, so it's kind of like. You could spin up multiple instances of it, but it did all run. It was it was kind of a mess. And so now that whole system has moved to core and we're even still making changes on it now. It's definitely more, um, it's more broken out. And each source is, we're moving it to its own microservice so that they can just process the jobs as they go. They don't have to dynamically load these assemblies and all that kind of thing, which is somewhat wasteful and we can horizontally scale. Like say Texas, you know, when we get their production, we need yeah. to run just a ton of jobs. And today, it's kind of, we can scale the, the zombies all horizontally together, but we can't scale Texas individually, for example. And the way we're heading, we'll make it so that we can scale Texas's resources independently from say like Montana that hasn't updated. But it's crazy though, because the first iteration of our zombie was a wind forms and you would hop on the machine <laughs> sure. and you would spawn up 15 instances of it. And, um, you know, you could direct it to pull jobs from one source or another, but still you would open up the remote in remote into one of our, you know, just workstations that we had. And there would just be like this cascade of windows there running all the jobs. And, yeah. um, when you think about that, like how that used to look, and then now they're just containers and Kubernetes, and we just yeah. go change it to say we want 50 instances of it, and then they all just you know spin up in Kubernetes, and we have them all running our uh, in our cluster, and um, so yeah, the it's a pretty massive difference when you think about that. Um, yeah. Code wise, it's not. I mean, there was a lot that went into it, but it wasn't that bad. Um, no, uh, changing yeah. app domain stuff around to get it into and and you know just kind of losing the libraries that weren't core compatible. And then once you do that, you're good to go in Ubuntu. And then once you're in Ubuntu, you can spin up containers and Kubernetes, no problem. So we're all yeah, today it works largely the same. It's it's communicating, instead of loading assemblies over app domains, it just downloads the package and creates a gRPC communication channel between the zombie and whatnot, runs its work and, and delivers the work back, you know, the result. So it's similar, but different. So, you know, there's one other side of this I'm going to, I want to touch on though, is that the database side is interesting. Because, yeah. I, I want to get um, on that the way we do this. Um, oh yeah. Well, just a high level, the database, 
every state or every source gets their own database, but then the the kind of collapsing into the instance that runs the site used to be kind of batch job situation where we would kind of every night we would try to pull these things together and then push them over, run all of our rules and normalization, aliasing and all that stuff on like a batch job. Now everything's using messaging and pushing. And so like today, if you go to like North Dakota, where the NDIC publishes out their permit file at like five o'clock every night or something like that, our jobs are, are automated and scheduled to go look for that job and look for that file. Once it finds the file, it processes, pushes the messages to the front. That th Those go directly to our site. They're live on our site literally two to three minutes after wow. they're made available from the uh, NDIC. That's wild. Yeah, and that's running through all of our rules and everything, you know, so. That's, yeah. Uh, right. And it reduced locking and everything going that way. It helped us make it a lot more scalable. Mm -hmm. so. Sweet. Yeah, I was going to ask kind of, just quickly about your journey and or experience to containers and then Kubernetes. And then definitely also want to talk about the, the database side as well, because I think that's another one. And then at some point, we're also going to talk about self-hosting your your hardware, because that's a, yet another <laughs> well, one. I, mean, I think, is interesting. I think that, that may play into the whole yeah. Kubernetes thing, too, because I think most people think of Kubernetes being on the cloud. Right, I mean, like, cloud only. You know, um, you know, the implications of that, you know, running on-prem and everything. But yeah, let's, let's focus. It's there. Pretty funny, right? Because yeah. they call it cloud, cloud. What, what do you call it? Cloud compatible, cloud ready, cloud whatever. All it means is it could be cloud native, orchestrated, <laughs> and independently run like a microservice and Docker. You know, and um, so anyway, yeah, it's funny because people do think Kubernetes. They just think that that's a, I mean, a Google thing or an AWS. You just spin up a Kubernetes, but like it's really just Docker orchestration and yeah. you know, setting it up yourself. Don't get me wrong. I'm not recommending it for the faint of heart. It's, sure. it's there's a lot that goes into that, <laughs> yeah, and it doesn't stop once you get your your cluster spun up. But uh, it's, I mean, it's all very doable. Yeah, there there are a lot of knobs to tweak in Kubernetes, and I don't think people really realize that. And like even me yeah. as a <laughs> non-developer, I know nothing about architecture. Like when I was at HiveCell, you know, our push button deployment of it was great mm -hmm. to deploy it, but you could still go into, I don't even remember the name of the management tool we were using. Uh, you know, you could go in the back end. Weren't you guys using Rancher? It wasn't, not for the the Kubernetes oh, for monitoring. The um, mm. It was something else, but you go into it and you, know, you could see your instance, you could see the, the three clusters and you could but there is just like an infinite number of settings in this GUI. And I'm like, I can only imagine what's underneath this with like the YAML and yep. all the other config things that you can do. But it's a, uh, yeah, I mean, it's for those people who, you know, are unfamiliar or whatever. Like, I think a lot of people have either recently migrated to containers or are finally containerized, whatever. But then there's, there's this like weird, oh, well, you know, Kubernetes is just like the orchestration of containers. It shouldn't be that big of a jump, but it's not <laughs> it is. easy and there's not a ton of people that are experts in kubernetes across the world even as i found out when i was at hive cell when we were yeah. trying to hire <laughs> people um and so like that's a you know that's a, a big kind of it's not a risk but it's a decision a lot of companies are looking at or have to make and stuff and so i'm very curious on y'all's because it's it's one of those things that it's definitely not necessary for every application right like i'm Bobby and I are in the same camp that I don't know that Kubernetes is the best option for edge as it is today uh, and things like that. Right. But like, just give people your, your kind of experience thoughts, feedback on, on that considerations to think about. Yeah. Well, 
<laughs> well, like John said, it's not for the faint of heart. And we made the jump all at once, right? So we were running, we went from basically that WinForms application or a slight version of it into containers and running everything in Kubernetes. So it was kind of like, let's just go all yeah. in. He didn't toe dip. It wasn't yeah. like, oh, we're going to try some containers. It was like, no, we're going to do containers with Kubernetes and just do it. Yeah, <laughs> that's basically yeah. the, the move. And so uh, it was it was painful at first, I'm not going to lie. Uh, you know, and we didn't really know what we didn't know. It was one of those things that we got in. And we used Rancher to get started. Uh, that made it easier, you know, because it kind of, I don't know if you've ever seen that. There's Kubernetes, the, what is it, Kubernetes the hard way? And you go read through that about setting it all up manually. And you're like, wow. Yeah, no thanks. <laughs> yeah. yeah, not for not for two bootstrap people. Like... It's absurd. Yeah, and so yeah, we went into it with Rancher. It made it easing into that part easier, and you know, we just kind of started using pieces here for like the um, for like the backend systems. You know, deploying the zombies there uh, and letting it orchestrate as we added nodes in. Same thing with the site. The site is mostly like the main portal um, is basically a, a monolith, but we, we kind of branch out to services as needed. Like we have an export system there. We have like a print system, basically anything that would slow down uh, the main site, you know, like a hot path, we'll put it over there so we can get higher up. But um, well, so all of those went into the cluster. And I do think we've we've done a good job of of being open minded, uh, trying to always use the best tool for the job. And yeah. so what you said is is a good point. There are things that work well in Kubernetes and things that don't. And we've tested a lot of things, and we've actually come to the conclusion that by and large, stateful sets don't really do. It's just it's obvious that the the, the K eights or anyway that mm -hmm. was it was tacked on later. It's not well thought out. Um, it works when it works and then it doesn't. And between the networking stuff that we had to learn <laughs> that goes on inside of Kubernetes and then, um, and then, yeah, the, the kind of run-ins with stateful sets, um, you know, we've, we've definitely come to conclude that there's aspects of it, you know, I mean, the thing was built to run in memory. That's what you have to keep in mind. If yeah. your stuff can run in memory, then, then it probably goes well there. If you need to write to disk, then it's something to consider. Um, small disks probably work fine. Large disks are a bit of a nightmare. And so at this point in time, we actually do run all of our databases outside of the cluster. Yeah. Um, and then there's a few stateful things inside the cluster, but they are ones that, that, that are only stateful for the, uh, uh, to, to, to hold on, on reboot like redis stuff that we can re reload and things but they live yeah, in memory. it just uses a pure um, cache in that case and then even like our printing right. system you know like the job gets lost i don't care it has an empty disk it gets mounted with you know 100 gigs of space and it gets wiped on reboot i don't really care about that damn yeah, yeah no, but I would say that anyone who's who's diving into it, there is a right tool for the job, and yeah. and you don't just you know blanket you know lay a blanket statement across any of these. Um, you really have to kind of look and see what the tools were meant to do, and if you're doing something it wasn't meant to do, maybe you should look around and see if there's another tool that is indeed meant to do what you're looking for. Yeah, no, that was <laughs> that was the interesting thing conceptually about Kubernetes at the edge, right? Is it's like oh, robust resiliency, like failover makes a lot of sense if you're trying to automate like inexpensive or risky dangerous application right like you're not going to be able to do that unless all <laughs> all the code is at the source without no you know without having to connect to the internet mm -hmm. the flip side of that is kubernetes was designed for cloud <laughs> or yeah, architecture yeah. or you know just mainframes and just a steady single location single network computer setup and guess what? When you are on the edge, especially in the oil field, and you're moving networks every 
two to three weeks. It's not very good. <laughs> Kubernetes does not like being set up on one network and then being moved to another. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, no, yeah, it's no, a, no. The cluster itself can jump between networks, but don't move the <laughs> nodes of the cluster. But yeah, I, anyway. Yeah. No, it's fun uh, stuff. No, yeah. there is though. I mean, again, it's. I, I saw something on on the LinkedIn, which uh, I, I question its values. Everyone knows, but uh, the uh, <laughs> you know people talking about you know not needing to you know make some big solution. You know, I, I get what they were coming, were getting at. I forget who it was, and Josh, you might remember more. But it's just like people talking about use Excel if it's if it gets the job done. And like, okay, there's a tool for the job. The same thing has been saying like if. If you want to use Excel to get a proof of concept up, cool, do it. Uh, but it, like we talked about earlier, each of those steps is a debt that you're going to have to deal with on the technical side. So, you know, just keep track of them. And if you just keep working in Excel and keep racking up that debt, then you are either building a house of cards or, you know, uh, you're going to hope to sell before it crashes on yeah. you. Uh, that's all I can waste yeah, a lot of time. <laughs> I mean, same with Spotfire. I mean, yeah. Again, it's a great way to get started yeah. go fast but i mean like at some point you run into limitations or yeah. you know just again you let enough citizen developers develop in it and it's way too slow yeah. or you know just taking a lot longer yeah. than it took when they yeah. had less data two years ago and um yeah just no, is what it is it, but, it's yeah. just it's definitely a different like i mean there's so many things grafana spotfire power bi like there's all those things that are just like great tools to help zapier like all those little things that can really speed up just like you know, okay, instead of spending a day coding this and then maybe six months in the future, I've got to spend another day recoding it because they changed their auth, you know, uh, version or whatever. Like, hey, it literally <laughs> takes you 10 minutes to set it up. And then as long as you document it, like you survive to live, to see another day and work on the more important stuff. And then hopefully you have enough money at some point, whether it's through funding or revenue that, hey, we can now hire a bunch of people to start yeah. taking care of this well, stuff but it's, I mean, a, it's a very happy yeah, medium no, very I mean, fine line because again i get this i guess it's tough same with excel or spotfire or something like but it, you know they end up in production right um they're being used to make decisions and, and so on yeah. but i mean i yeah. personally from my lens now more as like a data architect data engineer look at it more of like these are great prototyping tools yeah like i mean like if he, if i can give someone a live wireframe like mm -hmm. this is what i want it to do but i need it you know to be done in a web app or something you know more robust than yeah, yeah. no th that's uh, i tell everybody that i talk to that is like working on an app idea or in the middle of development or in product like if you're talking to developers and they don't have like a deep understanding of exactly what you're doing or trying to solve build a mock build some kind of mock-up demo uh i've I used, uh, it's called TL draw. So it's like TLDR, mm -hmm. but TL draw, it's a, a new AI thing mm -hmm. the other day to try and show our developers what I wanted our menus to look like on this next iteration of collide. And it took maybe 10 minutes and a few iterations of me just drawing on this thing and adding text to it. And I had a live yeah. demoable thing of exactly how I wanted our text fields to work. Like it, it was a live website. I shared it with yep. them yeah. via a link. Like it was that's yeah. insane, that yeah. is awesome like it saves so much time <laughs> so let's chat about the database yeah. no side. i agree you see you no i'm sorry <laughs> sorry i know this, no, this remote thing developers and <laughs> it makes it harder <laughs> i know so many of these people that don't even start with the developer side you know right. they they build out these things and and then like they get to developers later and once they do they never had it documented properly and now all of a sudden they're trying to I mean, and if you guys talk to developers, like Josh and I are developers, so we, we can say what we want about them. Like developers 
are challenging to get your point across to because like they are just problem solvers. <laughs> mm-hmm. They they're you know everything's a nail kind of situation. They're hammers. Oh yeah. So like you can't you can't just throw things at them. You have to line them out yep. really nicely. And if you didn't document along the way, then uh, having developers you know jump on what you said about you know doing it to send to developers that's perfect but if you don't have developers then that's where you get in that black hole mm-hmm. and you'll get developers one day um, but yeah yeah now that's uh yeah it's <laughs> if you've ever if you've ever given a a, a developer a uh, you know a a backlog of a checklist like that's that's how i think about it anytime i i build a backlog or features or anything like that it's like they are thinking of this as a checklist of shit that they need to do and the like as long as it meets the requirement that you put here that is checked yeah. off the box so you need to make sure you are <laughs> right. incredibly accurate and detailed with that requirement and another way to do that is just to use a mock-up. <laughs> like, yeah. so much easier yep. to use yeah. a mock-up or a it's template true. or something. I mean, PowerPoint. Yeah. Picture's you know? worth a thousand words, yeah. right? Yeah. Exactly. But, but even, like, that reminds me. Detailed remember, spec. <laughs> like, John and I were working on the web app for RDS, mm-hmm. and we had a developer. And, again, we were capturing time series data, like, time-stamped from the, uh, um, from, the, from the sensor. But the developer used the inserted timestamp from the database so like everything was stacked on the same timestamps whenever it was actually like and we're like no we need the one from the sensor yeah, like you know but like again things you just assume that they knew but yeah. you, you don't realize how explicit yeah. you have to be sometimes that's true the the, the yeah. phrase assumptions are deadly is never truer than in software development <laughs> yeah. never assume and then that anything. was you know however much money in developer right, time yeah. that you paid for you know that then had to be you know, right now you're, you're doubling again up on to rework it yeah in the future yeah um, so yeah, let's jump in on the, on the database side. Cause yeah. like, you know, I think we're getting downstream art. Right, you got these jobs, whatever, but you're, you're dealing with plenty of rectangular data, but you're also dealing with a lot of like unstructured data too. So curious how you maybe stage that. Are those in different types of databases or layers? And then does it all end up, I mean, you said Microsoft shop, so I'm assuming probably SQL server. Um, but just kind of curious about that side of the stack. Yeah. So yeah, we, Josh. <laughs> yeah, so we started obviously with SQL Server. We're currently migrating um, to Postgres. Uh, kind of a long thing. Obviously, we have stuff in Snowflake as well. Um, but again, with long-standing policy, we haven't wanted to go in, all in on Postgres. But um, so yeah, all, like our unstructured stuff ends up in Postgres today, um, and it ends up. So it, basically, we get files in, and they'll go into a queue to get processed through a variety of different ways to. Um, to pull out all that data, and then we uh, have the jobs go in and try to catalog the data that was in the files, right? Is that like dropping so into like a JSON blob kind of thing, and then you know, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So we get JSON blob, and we'll go through, and we'll have jobs that know how to kind of look for the data and the different file types and that kind of. Thing. We have, you know, we have a lot of these files that we get from the state. Like, was it the uh, Texas file, for example? You get it's like two hundred pages with no bookmarks and that kind of stuff. So you know, we have to start way out of you know, classifying these documents as we break them apart. So we have to start at real high level and then get really specific as, as we can. Yeah, I was going to ask, like, right, what? and that's the thing about on. No, go ahead. Sorry, sorry. sorry. <laughs> the unstructured. No, it's not... <laughs> the unstructured data is an interesting one, though, because um, because you know there are standardized forms and standardized forms are nice. Um, and you know, there's a lot of things uh, as time has moved on. 
uh, for dynamically recognizing key value pairs out of structured yeah. forms for breaking out tables. Um, yeah, but even those, we then have to kind of cross-reference against our data model to try to understand what this data is. Um, you know, of course, there's always the the revision numbers and document numbers in the corners of these things. But um, at the end of the day, like there, I think we had an idea once that we could potentially make some generic. Uh, readers that could handle, you know, once we classified the types of documents to what they were, that we would use generic readers to extract the data. Um, and then actually kind of even in the classification, understand what the documents is, document is by cross-referencing our data model to understand which properties are being addressed in that document, then yeah. dynamically pulling out the key value pairs and then writing them automated into each of the data pieces. Um, which is not, I mean, it, it has worked somewhat, um, like North Dakota, because is the opposite of what Josh said, uh, has a massive PDF, but has lots of bookmarks in it. And pulling out a form six of the NDIC file is not hard. And in that file, um, there's a handful of things that are really helpful, things like frac stages and pressures and things like that. Um, but yeah, structurally wise, it's, it is still challenging because no matter what we talk about storage, um, you know, what do we have, Josh? 60, 80 million documents in our system, each of which yeah. could be 10, 20,000 pages. It's all over right. the place. Then you've and, got to um, convert those like to images. The cost and processing them. power. Yeah. Yeah, they're insane. It's, I mean, if you want to use an AWS text extract and you want to do the key value pair and table extractions, you're going to talk about six cents a page. Um, until you hit scale, and even at that, and that scale means like you're spending a million dollars a year on that. Yeah. And again, yeah, yeah. yeah. it's just a crazy thing. Ghost script and some of these, <laughs> these other Python <laughs> libraries. I was actually looking at that oh, earlier yeah. this week. Yeah. Well, and there's and then so many of these things. Um, you know, we we do have individual parsers that address specific right. types of documents just because they are. I mean, even that NDIC permit file I talked about earlier. It's it has this like crazy variable number of comma delimited fields, and you have to basically inspect each one of them and try to determine which one it is. And they'll just change it on you for fun. They'll add in bottom hole yeah. section township range in the eighth space for no good reason, and, and not even really tell you what it is. And so you just have to like write. I mean, I think there's got to be a hundred different test cases for the file type in our system. Um, yeah, was that the one like so, was that the anyway, one with the activity? Yeah. There was I, I was trying to parse some yeah PDF. it's the activity yeah I was yeah I could I felt your pain on that uh. <laughs> yeah it's a daily activity one that has the permit part at the top is cool yeah um, but then it goes through all these other different activity types and um, but the permit part at the top was the one I was talking about and we have a hundred cases for all the other types a lot of them we we do catalog what the movement was and then go back to the state page for that well and get the details from that but um, Sorry, we got off on a tangent there because the data files, though, that goes to Postgres. And I think it is important that we talk about the um, we've always used ORMs in our code, I think, because we always had the idea that we need to be flexible. SQL Server was a great way to get started. Um, but for horizontal scaling and cost, we're going to be moving to Postgres. Um, yeah. And so the fact that we're on you know, EF Core means that we can we can make that change without an extreme amount of work. Um, yeah. And so I think that's important for flexibility. I mean, databases, especially the relational database side, um, you know, there's they're they're not all apples, I should say, but they're more like apples and pears. Yeah. They're similar enough that uh, 
that uh, you should, you know, when you architect your systems, being able to be flexible on that backend database, I think is an important thing. Yeah, well, yeah part of the migration strategies with those messages now, you know, before we were reliant on replication directly in SQL to get this stuff done as part of a batch job. Now these messages can write to both. And so we can have this happening migration seamless to the customers, right? And right. then we just go all in on Postgres once we ensure that we have the performance and everything that we need to run the site. Can, can you step that. back real quick and explain to people, because I don't think we've talked about ORMs yet on the podcast. Yeah. Can like, I mean, for the people who may not oh. understand, can you, you know, just t give a real high level, what is an ORM and you know, why is it, why is it useful? You going down or me? Josh, it's you. No, you. <laughs> nice. Yeah, so, you know, obviously we store, you have to store uh, data in databases. And so they have their specific data types that are in there. And then when you get into uh, languages, you have, uh, you know, different data types in the language. And you have this mismatch between them. And uh, you can create, an ORM lets you create a mapping, basically, from the database into your language of choice. And it makes it seamless. And uh, most of them have built-in providers for different languages or for different database servers, right? So you can, uh, you don't actually write your SQL by hand. You would write, say, I want this, and it would go ahead and translate it. And you know, you're sending it to SQL Server, you're sending it to Postgres. It'll translate that query to, to your target database and you just get your data back and it doesn't really matter. Doesn't, doesn't it, care, yeah. Doesn't care, you know, that's the ideal world. You obviously have these providers for the different databases and inevitably have differences in how they <laughs> generate the queries. Oh, yeah. So you have a little bit of a leaky abstraction there, but the idea is that it should be that. <laughs> yeah, no, I've got two other questions. One, we haven't talked a lot about OCR with anybody yet. So I want to kind of just get some, some info from y'all there. And then two, I want to kind of roll that into probably our last kind of topic before we do our, our uh, speed okay. round, but like how kind of, once you answer that, how has, kind of some of the new AI computer vision stuff. Have y'all looked at any of that at all? Or like, do you see that as kind of the next iteration of the, the OCR RPA type? So, so I say OCR, I really am talking about RPA and the grand scheme of things, but that's obviously a big, you know, buzzword uh, consultant consultancy uh, <laughs> term that's been floating around these past few years. And I do think that, you know, like a lot of what y'all are doing, a lot of accounting departments, like there's so much opportunity for, RPA where it's literally just removing human data entry from, you know, reading a form to putting it in another form. There's so, so much room for improvement on in the yep. energy space for that. So I'm curious kind of what your experience and stuff has been like with OCR. Um, and then kind of what do you see in the future of, of that space as well? Yeah, I think we can both chime in on some of this. The, uh, the, yeah. my, my frustration with some of this is uh, so like even Amazon Textract has had its machine learning capabilities built in and they work at scale. And so building that model um, works. It, it's, it's good to do um, the, the open source tools that we've played around with on OCR stuff. Um, they have capabilities to be trained, um, but the scale in which you have to work on to train those models is sometimes challenging to deal with, especially when you've got, like data set like ours where we've got you know whatever it is 26 30 different sources of documents and none of them have more than at you know at texas would have um you know at least you know millions of the documents but then these other states like north dakota 30,000 and you basically barely have enough to train a full model right. um 
to to do this part for you. I mean, the, the size of the data is, is challenging, but if you yeah. use like an AWS to do it, they've got a lot of scale to work with, but they'll charge you for it. Um, and so like, it's, it's a little bit of a chicken and egg thing right. as far as there's great tools out there and it's, and honestly, they're getting better and better. Um, and, and even open AI, Josh can talk to you a little bit more on what we've done on the vision side there. Um, but uh, these big scale, these, these big companies uh, that, that have the scale have a lot of opportunity there, but they also have a lot of expense there that it costs for people like us to work through. So there's a number of tools, um, but, you know, and, and that's the other thing Josh has worked on some of the document identification stuff and some of these, especially old documents, right. they just require so much massaging before you can actually run them through anything. Yeah, no, I mean, that's, um, that's got to be one of the biggest like my first roommate when I moved to Houston, he had just uh, graduated. He was studying for the bar, but he was working as a landman. And I remember the first day he came back, he was like, yeah, you know, I, we were talking. And I was like, how'd it go? You know, he's like, yeah, well, I went from whatever, 18, whatever, or 19, whatever to present. I was like, that's a really random number. And it was like 1890 something, whatever. It's like, why, why that? He's like, oh, well, that's when they started using the typewriter. And I was like, Oh, I was like, so you've got like 200 years of, of title documents that are like script literally. And I'm like, so land is just so screwed as far as like the digitizing part. Oh yeah. I've got a guest that we need to bring on. I just saw a platform last week. It was pretty sweet. Yeah. But yeah, I I think that's just the big thing that, uh, you know, the, the average person that, you know, might be listening or whatever that isn't involved in kind of the regulatory space or the data space doesn't realize that every, literally every single state has their own data sets, their own data types, their own data formats, their own structures, whether they have structured forms or unstructured forms, whether they consistently yeah. put the data in the same spot on that form or not. Like, Multiple it's revisions a, of that same form over yeah. the years. Right. Is it forms changed slightly. Yeah. Yeah. And it, none of it yeah. was ever architected to be, uh, you know, ingested by computers essentially. Right. Right. Yeah. Not like they all have nice little black boxes around them. You're like, mm-hmm. yeah, just give me this region of it. And it's like, no, it's usually you know, skewed yeah. real bad. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah. When we started it, we started what with Tesseract, I yeah. think way back. And we thought we would just do the basics, you know, grab a file, throw it in there and give us all this information back. And it turns out that's not at all the case. Like, <laughs> you give it a whole it's hilarious document. Though. You, you get a whole document, gibberish. You scrambled gibberish paragraphs. And it does give you text back, but you have like no real recognition of what's going on, how it lines up with the dog without actually looking at it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, we, we did some stuff with that we, and like, but it basically just took the dump of the Tesseract and put it into like Elasticsearch and at least, at least made it searchable. Yeah. But like when you guys are trying to right. take specific mm-hmm. pieces and put them into like a, you know, structured data set that people can use, like it's a way different story. Yeah. Well, then no, that's t- it. And that's exactly yeah. what you see it working well for like solar and, and uh, what Elasticsearch ingestion. That's like what it does. And so you can find the documents in that case. But yeah, when we need like, what was the depth or who's the operator on this right. filing or whatever, you know, it's like, and that's what John was talking about. We actually started playing with the newer ChatGPT vision stuff where, you know, we obviously had to build these kind of model and classification so we can identify the document and then go pull these areas out using Testract, right? But like ChatGPT's new vision stuff, you can like give it a document and say, who's the operator on this yeah. thing? And it gives you the answer back. Yeah. And you're like, this is impressive. And you can be like, what's the official name of the of this company? And it gives you even extra information right. as long as, wow. you know, it's an, an older company, but it, it's super impressive. So it's stuff we started... At least, you know, I wouldn't say we could trust it 100% yet because it does still have some, it'll grab random stuff. But, you know, if we have these multiple data points, we can kind of get an idea of, yeah, that's right. Will, like, the um, 
chat GPT vision stuff, will that give you like a um, confidence rating? Cause like, I mean, say with Textract, I, I mess with it, like it'll give you a confidence rating of a certain piece of information. Right, right. Yeah, you can have it do that. Okay. Yeah, no, I think that's the well, thing. Well, and that's the yeah, beauty about our systems. Things. and yeah. yeah, we combat some of that too because we have a database of all the operators. We have a database right. of all the fields, all of the leases. I mean, we, we have all this information for this existing data set. And so it helps us to cross-reference our existing data set um, to help ensure that the data pieces line up nicely as expected. Um, yeah. And then we have written... Um, and it's unfortunate, but we did write a uh, kind of a key value parser out for standardized forms. And it really is funny to do because you're like, you know, I'm looking for this keyword and then I'm looking, you know, left up beneath <laughs> what's my next keyword. What's my spacing <laughs> yeah, to look yeah. for? Okay. Now I've got my box. Like now give me the text out of that box. Mm -hmm. Now cross reference that box to my other data to make sure this looks correct. And anyway, it's, it's, so there's cool things. And, and I mean, we wrote that part, um, but you know, it's kind of thing that you'll get out of a, a text track, you know, if you want to pay for it. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, that's always, I mean, money comes into play in all of this. Of course. For sure. Yeah. All, all problems are solvable, right? If you've got a big enough budget. The, uh, no, I think that's, <laughs> that, oh, that's yeah. true. That's really the big thing that I've even just in starting to mess around with some of that stuff earlier this week, I've taken away is that like with RPA and OCR, if you've got a stand, if you've got, an invoice and it's from the same company and it's the same structure and format and everything is always in the same places or in the same general areas much easier to do than you've got a hundred different data sources and none of them are the same and mm -hmm. none of them some of them conform and will always be in the same way and others won't like it's a very different different story and of course it all boils back to the data which is yeah Oh, yeah, well, and you go look well, at and that's, existing yeah. solutions out there, like you have Butler and a whole bunch of companies yeah. that are making these uh, real nice OCR systems, but they're more targeted at stuff like that, like right. scanning in receipts yeah. and invoices, things, and not all these kinds big of... invoices and that kind of stuff. And they, they even have templates, driver's are, license, all right. that kind of stuff. And it's like, okay, well, can Those we things are solved that? problems. It's not going to work. It's good, good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, check it's is easy a, to read. Receipt is easy to read. Even an invoice is almost, I mean, again, line items, yeah. totals, sums, even a few keywords. That, I mean, but when you are given, like we talked about, you know, each state might have 15 different forms and 15 different revisions of those 15 forms, and that's times 30 different. I mean, yeah. it, it, it's a whole different. And then you get into, it's, it's you know, like you're talking about title opinion. We were talking about it with that company the other day, and like we have some that are. 500 to a thousand pages long. I mean, like, right. And a, uh, and you talk yeah, about money, you like go. you, you, you have to spend enough money with open AI, even for them to unlock that many pages, mm -hmm. you know, but I mean, it's, yeah. it's <clears> not <throat> trivial. Um, and then, I mean, I well, mentioned Textract and like even AWS has part of the service where you can say, if it's below this confidence interval, we'll send it to some people in India and they'll look at it and, yeah. you know, to yeah. do that last right. you know, mile for you. Yeah. No, that's, yep. that's well, and I'll say a funny story about OpenAI. We fed some data into it um, just in, back in December, and I found it pretty comical. I was we were just testing out some things and um, started asking it questions about some data and some permitting documents that we sent, um, and it started returning back fields from one of our competitors, and it just it said their name underscore lease or something like that. And I'm like, where did you get this? And it's like, oh, sorry, we just pulled this. And like, what do you mean? Oh, sorry. Yeah, like, how, that's true. where did this come from? We pulled it from there. And Azure it's just like, instance, we, John. we, yeah, we <laughs> right. just mixed up some data. Yeah. Ignore this. And yeah. you're like, I can't just, anyway, sorry. Yeah. I, no, that's it's pretty uh, weird. That's wild. Like it blew my mind. That's a, yeah. that's an interesting conversation. And my, our, even 
my personal and our thoughts as a company on what what that structure looks like in the future as far as like corporates and like how do you how do you provide people with general information from you know a gpt model but also allow them access to their private information within their own models at the same time so that yeah. the contextualized model can give you the detail and the high level general model can give you yeah. kind of the general stuff around it. Well, but think about these companies, you know, the, con yeah. the um, you know, like Saudi or some of these countries where they have the federated, like yeah. where you have to keep things within their bounds, but maybe they want to utilize that, but they mm -hmm. you have to run everything <laughs> within, yeah. no, no data can leave, you know, the country. Leave, the country. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, it's, it's gonna be interesting to see it the path is. forward. I mean, we, I know we've said multiple times we need to pull together like a little no, panel we, discussion we on like will. AI, like just implications and all that. I mean, yeah, no, there's, I mean, shit, I wrote a paper right. two or three days ago and it was, uh, there's a couple new methodologies where they're merging AI models. They're merging the answers of the AI models in this new way where it provides much more context, but also interestingly enough, allows the models to essentially one of them to train the other one as far as it based off the responses. So if its response is better than your model's response, it'll learn that and continuously improve. And so it's like, golly, this is- it sounds like Skynet. Yeah, yeah, this is gonna get crazy <laughs> really fast. And then I saw the video yesterday on Reels of the, I don't even remember the name of it. I'll put it in the show notes or something, but this new robot that they came out with, and it's just like mechanical arms on a dolly and you train it <laughs> physically how to do it. But it was unbelievable. Like it would go, it was making coffee with, you know, the Keurig pods, it was washing dishes, it was opening doors, it was doing all this stuff. And it's Whoa. just like these arms that you put on, you do it yourself yeah. and then it learns it and then that's it. Wow. And I'm like, that makes that sense to me. Though. Future is crazy. <laughs> well, it'll definitely yeah. fold closer yeah. than me well, and my wife will be happy. Yeah. Oh, God. Or just oh, put them well, in I like the stuff doors. like that better than this. <laughs> We've got this hyper focus on these uh, language models, yeah. and and they're neat. Don't get me wrong, but like they're very just like they kind of a Toys. to me, they're being used um, for more than they're intended for, yeah. and so it ends up in some weird state. So the idea of learning that kind of activity is actually way more interesting to me than these another long you know large language yeah. model chatbot goofiness. Well, I've always thought that <laughs> that was fascinating, right? Like all of us grew up believing that robots would be butlers and like driving us places and doing all of these yeah, like yeah. low level jobs. Like, and in Rosie reality, from the Jetsons. right. Yeah. And in reality, it's now replacing, you know, creative jobs or like what, you know, it's, it's this weird <laughs> dichotomy of like, yeah. where are the robot janitors? Yeah. Those don't exist. But now we have yeah. robot artists and you know musicians and all this crazy stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Um, well, we're, yeah, it's odd, but I mean, it's true. It's easier to learn. Yeah. yeah. We're out of time. So we got to jump into the speed round cause we got another one coming up. Yeah. I'm nice. gonna, I'm gonna ask you guys a gaming question and I'll try and keep it in a general time frame. Um, Sonic NBA jam Goldeneye, or Zelda. Which one? Pick, pick first. Pick pick one. Goldeneye. Because uh, I love Tears of the Kingdom and Breath of the Wild, but the, <laughs> I almost said yeah, Kingdom. I, I'm going to go with Goldeneye too. That first person. Yeah, that was like because I played Doom and that. Yeah. Doom was but so like Goldeneye was awesome. So yeah, Goldeneye yeah. wins. It's the only game I've ever been in a competition with. I love Goldeneye so much. It's so hard to play now. A mall gaming competition. I won Mist. That's awesome. Another game. Yeah, I remember Mist. 
<laughs> uh, who's your favorite social media follow? Jeez. Oh, it doesn't have to be energy related or anything like that. It could be tech content. Yeah, whatever. Blog news. Could be Snoop Dogg. I don't care. <laughs> John's <laughs> off the grid in Montana, so that. Uh, yeah, I don't. I yeah, this is where it shows my age a little bit. We were just complaining. I, I would about say that, yesterday. Like, yeah, I'm very torn on it because it's a very good source right. of interesting information if you follow the right people. But then it's a lot of a, lot of, a source of a lot of just dumb shit yeah. as well. <laughs> so. Yeah, I follow a lot of just like it. business people on Twitter, and I think those have been the most yeah. valuable to me. Like even not technical business, even you know you have right. like mm-hmm. uh, was it Nick Huber, Nick Huber, like, yeah, startup, and and so you have a few guys like that that are have a lot of great content they put out there. Uh, Gers, what Gersley? Yeah, Gersley's great too. Every time they do, though, they they all think that they're smarter than everybody else, and it, they they get so arrogant sometimes. Yeah. Like, it's hard to like to to hear. Us. I appreciate Nick Huber's trolling, though. Yeah, that's right. There's a line. I I also having now kind of been in that on the media side of it. I also am much more confident in my in like people that have big online presences. I do feel like a lot of them got there because they know how to kind of like play that game and there is a certain online persona that got them there and that person as a person is probably not the same as that persona at all but the persona is what the internet wants so they keep feeding it (laughs) you see nick huber he's got a media team he spent seven hundred fifty thousand dollars last year on his media presence i mean (laughs) yeah wow that's impressive or or ridiculous i don't know (laughs) let's do one more uh (laughs) favorite database Oosh. That's a hard one. Let's see. You would have to have a favorite. I like MySQL. MySQL is so, <laughs> you can put it anywhere. It's so nice. I'd say SQLite no, for that reason. Yeah. <laughs> you can put yeah. it anywhere. Uh, that's true. Too. And, and I, when you bring, bring up SQLite, that. I got to bring up have you guys messed with DuckDB at all? I haven't. <laughs> Bobby's still feeling <laughs> DuckDB. Come on, someone's got to. <laughs> It's the uh, SQL light for uh, OLAP. Man. Bobby just really wants someone to use it so that nice. he knows whether he needs to start playing around with it or not. Or have you started messing with it? I've messed with it here uh, and there because yeah, you can, you can make it right. No, it's, it's supposed to be super fast. I mean, you can run it anywhere in the browser, you know, you know computer, cloud, whatever. But it's a uh, check it out if you haven't. Yeah. No, will for sure. No, will. No. No, I will say Postgres though. I I just like Postgres and, and how the community is, has rallied around it yeah. with all of the yeah. different plugins and everything that exists. The or the scalability. It's just it. It's to me SQL Server is the Windows and uh, Postgres is the Ubuntu. You know, SQL Server does a lot of nice things for you out of the box. It makes things easy to get going and it and but like once you start scaling it gets in your way left yeah. and right. And Postgres is the opposite. It does very little for you out of the box, but then once you get it optimized, then the sky's the limit. Yeah, I mean, yeah, what, one of my uh, coding bootcamp instructors told me, and it's kind of stuck with me, stuck with me, is like, if you can't do it in Postgres, you probably shouldn't be doing it. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty accurate, you know? <laughs> it's a good uh, exactly. good tidbit to, to end on. Guys, where can people find you, find the company? <laughs> Find you on LinkedIn? Well, maybe not. Well, yeah, we're everywhere, but welldatabase.com is is what you want. We obviously showed our social media prowess here, but uh, (laughs) anyway, uh, we are on the LinkedIn and the like. um, But yeah, uh, welldatabase.com, and you can uh, find all of our information and hit us up directly, ask any questions you want. Yeah, they've got a great product. I'm on Twitter, too, more than anywhere else. What's your handle, Jeff? (laughs) What's Twitter? Uh, I thought it was X. Sorry, X. Yeah, Yeah. you're right. See, I'm my age there. Uh, Holt 456 
I just realized that's going to be another thing that like our kids when we're yeah. in like 10 years, are, what are you talking about? What is Twitter? <laughs> Twitter.com still works. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, everyone's going to call it yeah. Twitter for a yeah, long time. It does. But, um, oh yeah. Hey, for what it's worth, my kids won't call it X either. They keep calling it Twitter. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Refuse. Yeah, no, go check it out. You guys have, I mean, free trials and free like features and stuff out of the box. A free right? tier, so, right? Yeah, yeah, go go play around absolutely. with it. It's a great tool. Um, thank yeah, you guys. Absolutely. For... Yeah. Uh, yeah, we, we are a, a real SaaS. You can sign up and you can actually get access without giving your freaking blood type or something. You know, yeah. And not, useful insight for free, you know? Yeah, how about that? And it's not yeah. one of the, uh, you get a seven-day trial as long as you put in your credit card so that I can automatically charge you when you forget to cancel your trial scenarios, too. It's, <laughs> these, they're great guys. So I appreciate you guys coming on. Thanks for having us. Hey, I not a problem. It. It's a pleasure. While some may see them as the crazy ones, we see genius. Because the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. Goodbye.